This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Emily Reed, CEO of AI for All. Emily, great to see you. Great to see you, Andy. So AI for All is a nonprofit that helps students explore and develop AI skills, but there's much more to it than that. Tell us about it. Thank you. Um, so AI for All, we were formed in 2017. Um, we started after two years of a program running at Stanford. Um, and the goal from the beginning was really to diverse, increase diversity and inclusion in artificial intelligence. Um, and the way that we look at what we're doing now is really building the AI talent that we need today for the AI future that we want tomorrow. Um, obviously, this has been, we've been in a period this past year of tremendous growth in AI, um, generative AI in particular. And while I think that's very exciting, it's very much the kind of uh, moment that our founders anticipated. Um, knowing that this is a field that is largely white, largely male, and largely inaccessible to students who don't have access to computer science education, don't have access to the social capital in these networks uh, in the artificial intelligence field, um, there are a lot of students who are may come from communities that are um, negatively affected by AI. Um, and also don't have a role right now um, in, its, in its development to the extent that they should have. Um, so that's where we're really trying to course correct is we have a program that's an accelerator for college students. And the goal is basically to give them the highly technical, responsible AI skills that they need to do the kind of AI that we think will be beneficial for humanity. Um, and then to build the social capital and connections for them to get roles in artificial intelligence. Um, so that may be getting into a research lab, that may, may mean getting a machine learning internship, um, but we also recognize that we're in a space where all of those roles are changing very rapidly. Um, and so we really convene folks from universities, corporate sponsors, um, high schools, uh, civic space, policy space, to really try to best understand the pathway that these students can have towards leadership in AI. So it's high school and college students, but not primary students? Yet. Not primary students, okay. no. And we focus right. primarily on college students. On college so we, students, right. we actually started as a high school program. Um, but what we feel is a real deep sense of urgency about where the field is going, as again, this has happened all quite rapidly. Um, but I think this has been coming for a long time. And so we feel that there is, there is room to course correct um, and to change what the kind of talent pipeline in AI will look like. But I think that that's a window that will close. And if we, I feel that if we don't change that rather urgently, then we're going to be kind of at a point of no return for the field. Um, I think that I've... I've been working in, I'm an, I was an engineer myself, worked in AI, machine learning, and cybersecurity. Um, and I saw a lot of progress in kind of late 20, 2010s. Um, and I've seen a lot of that kind of rolled back over the last few years. And so 
I feel an even deeper sense of urgency about getting these students into the workforce. So that's why we're really focusing on the college right now. Okay, and so you would set up programs in colleges and universities. Give us an example, a tangible example, and then tell us about a program and a course, how it actually works. Sure, yeah, great question. So we have have a number of partnerships with universities across the country, um, and we also work with community-based organizations to recruit students to our program. Um, We have about 60% of our students are women or non-binary students, and about 50%, and we're trying to increase to 60% this year, are Black, Latinx, or Indigenous students. And so we, so our program is open to all, but it is something that we really want to be a kind of counteracting force mm-hmm. to the rest of the AI talent workforce. Um, and so a student who joins our program, um, we have, for example, a really great partnership with Miami-Dade College, which is one of the largest community colleges in the country. Um, and they have a really act, they're really taking hold of the, the revolution in tech that's ha- that was happening in Miami that the pandemic really accelerated. Um, they're building up a lot of their tech programs and we, we were kind of their main partner at the beginning for building their like AI strategy. So a student at MDC who has kind of basic programming skills, um, we do require that as kind of a beginning part of our accelerator program. They'll join our program. They meet a cohort of students who are either at their university locally or students who are across the country um, so that they can build their network. And they go through a curriculum that basically teaches them these are the highly technical responsible AI skills. So we look at things like de-biasing a data set, um, understanding transparency and explainability. These are all privacy and security, human-centered design. These are all highly technical skill sets that require kind of a focus on how do we keep this humanistic edge, but it's it's different than having like an, an engineer and an ethicist speak to each other. So that's what we train students in. And then we built, we have connections with corporate partners across the country and they come and they do mentorship. They right. give advice on students' projects. Um, they talk about their internship programs. And so we focus on getting them through their AI technical interviews and into roles. So is AI biased, and how do you how do you de- de-bias a data set? So two-part question, yeah. and and if you could answer the second part in a in a way that a non-technical person sure. can understand. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, to the first question, short answer is yes. Um, how do you know that? So like any tool. Um, AI and the data that is used to train AI um, is a reflection of the people who make it and the world we live in. So one example, so there's sort of a statistical definition of bias, um, and there's sort of our more kind of political societal definition of bias. Um, There's great, the sources I always cite for this, um, one of my favorite works on this is... um, Dr. Joy Boulamini's work um, from MIT, she did work uh, with a number of other colleagues on looking at facial recognition software and seeing, showing that basically facial recognition software, which is now being used in police departments across the country, um, is, works much better on lighter skinned faces and works very poorly on darker skinned faces. Um, And that is in part because of the data that it's being fed. 
Um, but the other thing you have to consider is that we also live in a world that's biased. So even if the data set is representative of the world, it's going to represent that bias too. Um, and so Dr. Ruha Benjamin at Princeton talks about this as the new gym code, the idea that AI, if, it's, if we're not taking care of these biases from the beginning, um, it is going to further cement that problem, right? And so that's why our philosophy is that students should be thinking about these issues from the very beginning of their education. You know, I've worked in the field, our board members have worked in the field, and kind of ethics in AI, responsible AI, trustworthy AI, um, have kind of become a bit of buzzwords, but in practice, a lot of it happens at like the end of the engineering life cycle. It's not necessarily something that folks are thinking about from the beginning. Um, and I think that a lot of other fields, if you look at like medicine or law, kind of ethics is baked into the practice. And I think that AI is getting to that level of influence and we need to really be thinking about it differently. Does that speak to the de-biasing the data set? Yes. And then how do you do that? If you yeah, just so tell the me that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So I'll, uh, the, the kind of less technical version that I'll give is that basically what you have to look at is one one way that people do this is look at, okay, does your data have protected classes, right? Do we have data on race, gender, um, socioeconomic status, disability status, veteran status? Um, and let's look at are these, are there other items that are indicators that are kind of, um, are not, that's not properly represented? And we're not getting a, we're kind of getting significant um, results b within one of these uh, protected classes, right? So there are statistical ways to look, okay, is this going, is this, um, did we have the kind of proper diversity in the data set from the beginning? Um, and there are people who are working on ways to address that. Um, there's a great program that's been around for years called um, Data Sheets for Data Sets, and it's basically like this is the metadata on top of the data set that you're using to train that's explaining where it came from, what the privacy issues are, where there might be holes in the data. And so there are, there are these um, kind of robust statistical methods to test for that, um, but just the biggest challenge, honestly, is making it, making it a regular practice. Right. Shifting gears a little bit, Emily, you co-authored an article with a headline that said that AI would add 15.7 trillion in GDP, global GDP. Right. Why is that? How is that possible? Well, I think that one of the biggest reasons why that is why that's happening and why that's possible is that we are now living in a moment where AI is, as folks have described, as almost like the next electricity. It's really drastically, dramatically changing every business. Um, ten, 10 years ago or so, folks used to say um, every company is a tech company, and now it's becoming every company as an AI company, right? And everyone's working on figuring out their strategy. Um, part of the reason why that, that number is potentially so high is because there are whole jobs that are quite different than what we thought five years ago that are being replaced by generative AI. So when I joined AI for All in 2017, I remember we were primarily, folks would be primarily concerned about um, blue collar jobs that were going to be replaced by AI, factory worker jobs being replaced by robots was kind of the biggest concern that folks had. Um, now what we're seeing with generative AI is it's changing the legal profession, it's changing roles for copywriters, and it's even changing roles for software engineers. Um, when I started in this field, 
10, 15 years ago, we looked at computer science as the way to a to a great career for our students, right? That this, this would be kind of a, a ticket. Um, and what we're finding is that that's not enough now because AI is completing your code for you. Um, and so the value that that is, the disruption that it's creating and the potential value that it's creating, I think is, is giving us that number. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit. You spent time in Silicon Valley, and your organization was co-founded by Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, who worked yes. at Google. Um, what do you make of what's going on in Silicon Valley? And let's just start with what happened at OpenAI. What do you yes. make of that? <laughs> so, um, you know, I think that the work that OpenAI is doing is amazing. Um, and I think they have been thoughtful about how to deploy their tools in a responsible way, something that can't be done perfectly. And so I think they're they're doing really excellent work. But Obviously, we saw this enormous upheaval in a short period of time around their board. Um, as someone who's been very concerned about representation and influence in the industry, it was concerning to see the two female board members leave. It's now an all-male board. Um, you know, I had shared, I'd seen these lists of influencers and in AI, and they continue to be kind of all male um, and mostly all white, and that is actually not an accurate representation of the influence in AI um, that folks can have. Um, but it it is a little bit concerning to me that that's kind of where where things landed. Um, I don't. I believe um, in my core that the best, most well intentioned group of folks. If it's a homogeneous group, they're not going to be making the best decisions for humanity. And this is one of the most influential companies of our time. Um, and so I hope that there will be able to be some, some change there. Um, their CTO, Mira Marathi, has been a friend of the program. She's done some amazing work. Um, and she's, she's their most senior female leader. Um, but while it is in part a representation of what's going on in the field, um, I would hope that a company that is as forward-thinking about the technology could be just as forward-thinking about the, the human beings involved. Interesting. Are you an AI optimist or pessimist? Go slow, go fast. Where do you stand? Yeah. Um, I would say that I'm an AI humanist, if there is such a thing. Um, I feel a deep sense of concern about the potential uh, for AI if we go down the negative route um, and if we don't think right now about how we course correct. Um, at the same time, I think that AI can be an incredible tool for good, um, especially if we're putting it in the hands of students who see problems that, you know, the say, the board at some of these AI companies might not see, right? These are students who have been historically excluded from artificial intelligence. 
and they are seeing different kinds of problems that AI can be used for. So I think that there is a lot of potential for good, um, but I would not I would not put myself in the AI optimist or techno optimist camp. Mm -hmm. I have the most faith in human beings and a diverse group of human beings um, and giving them these tools to kind of build the future that we want to see. A lot of people in our audience are looking to invest in AI and they're curious about that and people know about NVIDIA and how their chips are used in AI, which caused the stock to go up a lot. Yes. <laughs> what would you say to people who want to invest in AI, directly or indirectly? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, you know, from what I see as a computer scientist myself and working with a lot of our corporate sponsors who are building their AI strategy, um, some folks are really kind of waiting to see what's going to happen in the policy space before making a lot of um, pivotal investments. A big part of that is we don't know what AI policy yet is going to look like. Um, our board members have been advising the White House on that. Um, that's something that I think that there's a there's a real kind of brain drain around folks who are really well versed in policy and well versed in the technology. And so that's something that that we're actually working on as well. Um, so I think that there are some folks, depending on the business that you're in, like how much regulation is a part of what you do certainly has to be considered. Um, I do think that there is a lot of potential and creative work that can be done. Um, but there needs to be, the biggest thing that I would suggest to folks is to have a really clear set of principles and policies for w how you're going to make sure that it's implemented in a responsible way, how you're going to build trust with your audience. Um, I think the number is about like 48% of Americans uh, have concerns about AI and something like 78% believe that there are going to be negative effects of it in some form. So the the form that the word that I like I prefer most is is trustworthy AI because it's recognizing that there is a relationship between the technology and your users, your customers, your clients. Um, so thinking through your trustworthy AI strategy is I think a good place to start. Right. I, I'm curious. Do you think I mean OpenAI is an AI company and there's others, but other companies are part of Google, for instance. Um, so I mean are is it going to be that there are AI companies to invest in, or is it going to be that companies you should invest in companies that will benefit from AI? Right. Well, I've heard I've heard folks say that you know looking at AI as a tool right now, we could compare to looking at the internet as a business tool in the 1990s, right? So this may just be very much become kind of part and parcel of how business is done. Um, I don't think it's there yet, but I do think it has the, the potential. Um, you know, some folks have kind of gone down the concerns around, it, is one of these companies like OpenAI going to create an artificial general intelligence? What does that even mean? What does that really look like? Um, or is it going to go the route of, we're all going to have these kind of personal AI assistants that are kind of part of everything that we do, right? Is it this more kind of um, large cohesive AI or is it this kind of more dispersed? And I don't I don't think we really know that right now. I actually, my intuition would be that we kind of, it becomes the more dispersed route. Um, so in that case, I think it's, it's really that all of those tech companies become AI companies in some form. 
Right. I want to follow up on that personal assistant thing because yeah. even if it's general, you'll still be using it as an individual. Right. And, you know, our experience, my experience with ChatGPT, it's like, well, I'm working with it. But at a certain point, I just tell it to do everything, all the work. <laughs> I mean, so, and this yeah. is just like day one. But when day 10 comes, it'll be so much better. And I'll just be left there not doing anything. Right? Right. It's, um... So I have a, my, my father's a college professor and he certainly noticed a change in some of his students' writing when he, when ChatGPT came out. Um, and he had some interesting ideas, which were, I think we have, and I've seen folks across country do things like this, is we have to figure out how to accept that it's going to be there. Um, and then how do we change it? So um, he had the idea to say, let's actually use ChatGBT in the classroom and build, he, he teaches sociology, um, let's have it build a sociology textbook. Um, and this was an interesting idea to me as a computer scientist because what he was basically proposing was a computer science class, but you're using English instead of a programming language. So he was saying, let's use ChatGPT to build a textbook, that means that he's basically testing students on what their prompts to ChatGPT are. Are they focused enough on the learning goals that it's actually creating the outcome that you want? Um, as someone who studied computer science, that's what most your computer science projects are, is there's an end result that, you know, that could be written in a number of ways, but what you're putting into it, um, what you're putting into the compiler, right, is what you're actually being tested on. Um, and so the outcome is a result of that. Um, so in, it, it's interesting because Ch what ChatGPT has done is made English a programming language. Um, so as you said, there might be something that you are you're producing, you're using it to um, you know to to create. Um, not saying you're using one to create a piece or something, but right, but mm -hmm. but it's possible to yep. do right, and it's and it becomes harder and harder to differentiate. Um, and the internet is flooded right now with chat GPT created content. Um, and it can be challenging <clears throat> to differentiate that. But I think that part of this is exactly why we really need to think about representation because what is being fed into those models and kind of how it's creating this like groundwater for our work um, is going to be designed by the folks who are actually creating the AI and not just using it. Emily Reed, CEO of AI for All, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for having me. This is At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barron's is Ellie Esmailadu, Joe Lusby, Kinga Rojak, Rebecca Bisdale, Katie Ferguson, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producer is Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week. This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.